Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast uh, with myself Peter White, um, our analysts Harry Morgan and Andrew Swantonar and our product manager Simon Thompson. Um, we're going to go over the issue we put out on Thursday the 15th of October and ask a few questions and talk a little bit about what's behind the scenes. We have to talk about the election, even though it's not over, although it's trending towards Biden. Do we genuinely believe that he will be in what we would call in the UK a hung parliament, i.e. have insufficient power to get his way on major items? If so, what does that reduce going forward in terms of wind, uh, solar and, and battery power? I believe there's going to be some latitude. You know, we, we have complained bitterly that the renewables industry has not done well under Donald Trump. And he didn't have much more of a majority. He started with a good majority in both the Senate and the Congress, but he then lost his Congress in the midterm elections. So he, he will have been frustrated in this, a similar way, not quite as, as uh, frustrated as Biden will be, in his ambitions. And, and that's something that American parties are used to dealing with. So, I mean, I, I would expect him to get some kind of spend through for green activity, but it may not be anything like the size that he wanted. And I would expect him to be able to pass a, a refresher for the ITC and for EVs. So I think there will be some latitude there. But I mean, what he can do through presidential decree is considerable um, because that's where that's really what uh, happened through Trump's administration that he, he did things through a presidential decree. So he has control over whether we have a tariff war with China. Yeah, I mean, we've also seen quite a lot of stuff in the wind sector. I think it's been really interesting watching the wind turbine manufacturers stocks respond to the election dynamics. I mean, I think it was like 10% that Vestas and Siemens Gamesas fell when Trump suddenly stormed out of the blocks, forming a lot better than expected. I think this is a little bit over-exaggerated. I think while Trump has been very outspoken in opposition for wind, I don't think he's actually managed to restrict its growth too much. I think through his administration, the production tax credit has been extended several times. So he hasn't been too detrimental to the wind sector. I think it's more that if Biden comes in, that we'll see a lot more permitting come up on federal lands and certainly for offshore wind in federal waters. I think things will start to accelerate much quickly, much more quickly. In order Um, to do that, he's got to change the head of some of the uh, federal offices. Yeah, and that's that's another really interesting dynamic. I think since we published the issue, actually, Trump's tried to push through James Danley as a replacement for uh, Neil Chatterjee in in FERC. Well, well, it's already done. It's a done deal. He just announced him. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I mean, it is done. I mean, it's it's kind of it seems a little bit tongue in cheek. It almost I think if Biden wins the election, Danley could be out as quickly as he's come in. But I'm not quite sure how disruptive Biden will want to be to FERC in his early stages. The the reason he's done that is Chatterjee has adopted uh, a kind of federal approach to distributed energy. And, uh, you know, he's wanted that to be, um, he's promoted that as a good thing, something all Americans would want. And for some reason, Trump's against it. I I mean, that's quite strange. Most people like the idea of an American doing things independently of some central body. And that's, that's the whole ethos of republicanism. So for people to provide their own power and start selling it, you would think is pure American, American's apple pie. So that's all he did. And for some reason, Trump was really annoyed at him. Yeah, the other thing he did was he came, uh, Chastity came out and spoke that he was sort of open to taking on considerations around carbon pricing, which is something that Trump is staunchly against. 
Well, all he did was have a debate, you know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was just it was literally just a public statement, and suddenly he seems to be out, just completely out. And Danley, who has been quite outspoken against carbon pricing, is suddenly in. Danley's also voted against all of these distributed energy resources programs. So, I think so you've but, got the Bureau of Land Management needs a change at the top. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The EPA needs a change at the top. By the time we get there, FERC will need a change at the top. The Department of Energy will need a change at the top. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration will need a change at the top. And the Department of the Interior will need a change at the top. So we can change all those things. And and, and if they want to survive COVID, the Centre for Disease Control will probably have a new leader and a team that's got got at least one scientist in it. Yeah, I think the worry, the worry is, is that this so a lot of these appointments need Senate approval. And obviously, if this is a Republican Senate, there might be a bit of resistance. But I think if Biden throws enough mud at the wall with these appointments, then a certain amount of it will stick. And I think there will be a, some sort of reformation in these large organisations. I, I think the Republican Party without Trump does a lot of, has always in the past, done a lot of bipartisan support for good causes. I, I don't see them being as resistant to these changes as, as it would be with, with a Republican Party with Trump. No, I think it was, yeah, Andrews was saying before we started recording that I think the Democrats will be more pro-renewables than Republicans will be anti-renewables, Yeah, which I think it will be a major dynamic as they try to push through sort of the clean energy bill. Obviously, there will be some restrictions in spending if the Republicans get their way, but I think the Democrats will start to be able to push renewables. I mean, they did that around when Trump wanted to build the wall, nobody would give him the money. And it became a compromised discussion about what money he could and couldn't have and what funds he could use for that wall. And that's the same here, it's going to be for solar and wind. There's obviously will be some money. It may be restricted because of, well, we don't even know whether he's got control of the Senate. There's a four seats still uh, undecided as we speak. But uh, presuming it's a, it's a 50-50 even in the Senate, he won't be able to automatically push those through. So it's compromised politics, and that just means slightly less will be spent. I, I don't see, see that as a bad thing. Go on. And what about the uh, the big utilities, which in some cases are massive campaign donors? So obviously they have this this big gas and coal infrastructure that they want to protect, but at the same time they also have a foot increasingly in solar and, and renewables in general. So how how strongly will they be against renewables? So we're talking about slightly different things here. So gas that's delivered it through the mains to people's homes is not something which any of the utilities really questioned very much in the states and they will be very much four to five years behind europe on that as europe transitions off gas going down the mains to people's homes to for boilers cooking and heat heating so i I think that's i don't think that's going to be much change there but the number of approvals that have gone for gas turbines in the last two years have been coming down rapidly and we now have more than 50% of the states starting with the state governor and pushing down through policy through the uh, commissions we've got state policies that say no more you know you've got something like a freeze in in increasing the gas turbines to create electricity and in half the state so and you're seeing a bit more reticence to spend unwisely on that, purely out of the fear that everybody has put in the market, that the, if you spend a couple of billion dollars on these assets, you'll end up having to switch them off early, and that means you'll take a hit. And the utilities are not comfortable with that, even if they love gas. So I, I see that as withering anyway. Yeah, it feels like they're seeing the, the writing on the wall. I mean, most places in the States. I mean, there are, so even Duke, that's been fairly uh, reticent in making changes. And they came up with a, a zero emissions policy. Their zero emissions policy says, let's wait for CCS in a lot of instances, and let's put in a bit more gas. But they, they peppered it with 
um, a, a much larger spend on solar and an early spend on some energy storage. Not enough, but yeah, enough to get them used to the idea and see if it works. So even they who want to just carry on with the lowest capex possible um, so that they can keep their balance sheet as strong as possible are not are not bulking, uh, shifting towards renewables, not entirely anyway. And maybe it'll be the same with the, the Republican politicians. If they want to shift towards the centre, maybe renewable energy could be one of the sort of easiest ways to do that. Uh, yes, yes. Potentially EVs. I mean, EVs hold the sway here. If you don't need any more electricity, you don't need any charging points and you don't need and you, you have someone who makes cars who is resisting EVs in your um, state, then you probably dig your heels in. But uh, under Trump, you could get a lot of rhetoric from the car makers that were pro oil. But I'm not sure that was genuine. And I think under a, a green presidency, they, their rhetoric may change quite rapidly. I mean, we, we've seen this in other industries. Companies, public policies, no, we're staying as we are, no need to change. But they've got an R&D team with 200 people in it, costing billions, that are desperately trying to change their direction of travel underneath the bonnet. And they, they don't want to reveal that strategy until it's ready. And I think we've seen General Motors, we've seen in Ford, we've seen in a few companies in the States, that they are suddenly accelerating their EV programs. And they've, they've also seen the writing on the wall. I suppose one place we're really not seeing that is within the US oil majors. I think that's something where they're very much focused on continuing business as usual. They might have these promises of carbon capture. I know that some of them are messing around with things like algae to remove <laughs> uh, CO2 from the uh, from the atmosphere. But I think this is purely a way of them continuing uh, as usual. Algae is kind of slower than wind. Um, algae, you've got to build, you've got to grow the, the algae. You've got to find which combination. You've got to find how to apply them. I remember one mining thing in South Africa it took took something like nine years just just to clean the water that they were using after they'd used it and put the water back in the water supply without harming without poisoning people. I mean, it's a very slow. It's it's, a, it's definitely a technology worth looking at, but it's 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 never that simple. Yeah, I'm not against it at all, but I think yeah, the it's something that I don't think these large companies can bank on in terms of actually transforming their operations. I think that's really what shows that these US oil majors are just happy to continue as they are. Yeah, someone's got to provide the, the petrol for the next 15 years until cars half in number. But it's a declining market. Milking money from a declining market, it's never the most great, it's never that thankful a task. You end up with a share price in, in your boots and it's spiralling down. Unless you've got something else to bring you up, as the European oil majors are doing, you're just going nowhere with that strategy. Um, yeah, I mean, $600 billion is what's been wiped off just the sort of top nine oil majors this year, which is huge. It's, it's a collapse that we haven't really seen since sort of 2008, 2009. So it's an unbelievable wipe of value in a market that used to be probably one of the, well, used to be the biggest in the US, certainly. And again, the president's opinion makes a difference. So I'm sure if Biden becomes the president, he'll be talking to Mr. Bolsonaro in Brazil. He'll be talking to AMLO in Mexico. He'll be talking to them about, about not burning down the forests. He'll be talking to the other about, excuse me, these American companies were helping you do renewables. I think you should be nicer to them and stop changing the rules. And both of you should be pro-green. I think there'll be another influence that Biden can have by being by joining. First thing he said, he's going on day one, they're going to rejoin the um, Paris Accord. And as soon as they do that, they'll want a big seat at the party telling everybody, if you don't keep up with us, you're all in trouble and, uh, and laying down their plans, even if he can't get them through the Senate. He's still going to be uh, dragging more people with him. Other stories we wrote this week? OK, so we've done the election. 
So, well, Andres, I noticed we were talking about one of our pet subjects again, floating solar. So you attended the annual floating solar event? Yeah, so there was over a dozen companies there, like Baiwa, the other big guys. Uh, there was there was a Korean company that's going to install perhaps 1.2 gigawatts of floating solar at the same Angaeum plant, although probably that's going to start out with a pilot project and then they'll see if it works well. But uh, yeah, there, there were a couple of themes. So so one was that the levelized cost of electricity is actually equal to onshore, as long as you're gaining properly in certain aspects, such as uh, land costs. And one thing I saw, although I think Peter will probably disagree with me, but I think maybe I got a bit of a one-sided point of view from this conference on this particular issue was quite a few participants were saying that they didn't want to use HDPE floats, these uh, plastic high-density polymer polyethylene floats, and instead they were shifting to these metal ones that would make sure that the, the panels have a 30-year lifespan. By a, you'd have a, a larger platform that moves as one and doesn't put any stress on the panels themselves. Well, so, um, I mean, the, the whole idea of, so if you have a, a large flat platform, which is rigid, whether it's HDPE or steel or any other substance, you, you're going to have it lifted up by waves. So at the moment you have any waves, and, and the one in Korea, they have two metre waves, and that's behind the seawall. So now picture that rigid platform having one end lifted by two metres and then dropped down again. And that's happening in rough seas every few seconds. And so you're kind of putting pressure on parts of the structure. So it's really not about whether or not you've got HDPE as the flotation device. It's how you rigidify these things. When, you know, what, what you, do you do that with steel? Do you do that with light alloys uh, that are aluminium based? And if you do, are they strong enough? Are they strong enough for 25 years? And I think the, the big problem with uh, what bankability in these areas is no one's had one of these for 25 years and so Fine. they you know i mean i i know i bang on about him it's a little 10-man company in norway ocean sun but he's an engineer and he just says doing it that way makes it too expensive and it will break and there will be high maintenance costs throughout i mean if your inverter is nailed to the top of this thing and it's lifting two meters it's trying it's quite a heavy thing it wants to slide off into the water well obviously that's just shearing pressure on its bolts but if it's constant and so he has this idea of a, a very fine uh, membrane which has floats around it but where effectively the membrane itself is just behaves like a piece of cloth and the wave goes up the wave goes down it, it folds there's no actual stress put through it the cabling on on a rigid one can be hidden away and tucked alongside the edges of the support structures but do they break eventually you know and that's that's probably why people are having trouble investing in these people worry about where there are waves now on a lake that, that they're ripples they're not waves mm. you know and, and therefore so so that conference i think focused on smaller opportunities which are on lakes and whereas everyone's desperate for the opportunity that's offshore and the, and the um segman i can't pronounce it uh, the one in uh, korea uh, same mangium seawall um, even that even though it's behind the seawall has waves and um, although in fairness it's 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 in like i think it's in the path of typhoons so they have these 35 as well. per second oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 but that that will give you some waves as well um but it's if you actually look on the map it's on a big inlet that's many miles deep and then it's just a, a cut off that so it's it's actually it's pretty well protected and you're right, it would only be typhoons that really create um, big, big water movements. But they, um, you know, his argument is always, well, we'll see. There are some local suppliers who have their own ideas, 
but whether they can meet the price point and whether they can meet actually make it work over a long enough period after a trial. So I think all of that is, um, um, you know, when you hold a conference, you've got to have people come. When you want people to come, you're not going to get very large Chinese utilities to turn up unless they're going to learn something. You, you're going to tend to get startup companies to turn up who've got an idea. And most of those startup companies are nibbling away at the uh, inland reservoirs. And specifically, they might tell you at a conference like that, keep away from the uh, hydro reservoirs because we're too small to integrate the hydro and the solar at the point of transmission so that we're not clever enough to do that. That's because they find it hard to sell to large utilities. And, and instead, they're, they're, they're acting as a developer. They want to own this little project. They want to talk to someone who's got a small patch of land with, with some water on it. They want to build that and build momentum in sub 100 megawatt deals. And I think that's where Baywar is at the moment. There are some others who were there. Um, who, who was, um, you talked to someone, um, and I believe they've got some some big uh, installations in China, uh, room to be up in, in the multi-gigawatt level, but they don't talk about them. They just mm. show you pictures and understand, and, uh, and don't talk about them because they haven't really happened yet. They're, they're still in trials. Yeah, that does seem like another big shift is that in past years, it was almost all two megawatt or, or less installations, and now you're yeah. seeing a lot more. It, it's shifting a lot more to these 15 megawatt and above types. Oh, yeah, and, and I think you, if you actually rank them by date, you'll find that 20 to 50 to 100 megawatt is, is what's happening now. But and none of those small ones. The smalls are still, yeah. But um, there's that French specialist, Cielan Tier, who um, who they've done about 100 of these in Japan. You know, when you find a business model that works, you don't change it. You know, they, they've got hundreds of these, but they're all very small, and they haven't really chanced their arm on, on much larger ones. But it sounds like nearshore, and this is really what we're talking in places like say Mangaeum is is nearshore is the thing that they're looking at now. And they claim they fixed it in terms of salt corrosion and the, the survival of the floats over, over years. But they also mentioned offshore, like full offshore. Yeah, I mean, it's a different dynamic. Isn't just, it? just as an R&D thing. It is a different dynamic. Because if you solve it, sky's the limit. Same with, with floating wind. You know, if you can get a wind farm that's sort of 800 feet high to stand up in the water where no one can see it or bump into it, <laughs> there's in international waters and you can put as many of them there as you as you like between halfway between here and the states but it will, we'll have to survive some pretty appalling conditions i think the same is true of solar i think ocean sun is actually planning or considering doing it in the north sea which is not the sunniest place and it is one of the windiest places no they started in the north mm. sea they did the first trial in the north sea and, and they actually plug it into the grid and it works Mm. And that's been running for about four or five years. So, so that's they keep trumping everyone with that. They say, uh, "Well, have you ever tried your system in the North Sea?" Well, we have, and there are three million ones there, and they've got a point. <laughs> it's, it's not the best radiance on on the planet, and the, the ocean sun ones are always flat, so they don't have a, a tilt on the uh, towards the sun on the panel, so they, they they get a more oblique irradiance. So they they really want to just install. Uh, between 35 degrees south and 35 degrees north and the and, and the tropics if they can so that's just simply because they were in norway and they're a small company so oh, i heard that they actually considered it for those energy islands in the future in the north oh well, yeah no, they will be i'm sure yeah absolutely yeah yeah well, i mean you don't solve a problem and then not use the solution yeah, yeah that, they, they will pitch that yeah dmv uh, you were reporting that they were uh, talking about standards it's very hard to talking standards when you've got flat water that barely ripples, you've got water near harbours, which are fairly protected, and then you've got open the open sea. And, and you can't have one system fits all. 
So they're very much gearing up their standards for uh, inland uh, flat waterways. Mm. Yeah, that's what DMV wants. They want to. They, they did a bit on on standardisation for, for the sake of regulators and that and knowledge sharing that kind of thing. It'll take some big people to fund them in the first instance, and almost certainly uh, we'll be seeing large uh, installations in China. There, there already are some, but you know they've got, as we say, they've got 22,000 dams. So there's plenty of places in China to put these that don't cost them any land. And Harry, what's going on in South Australia? It keeps on popping up on the Rethink Energy radar. Uh, so yeah, South Australia, I'm, Andrew's touched on it last week, actually, at the, uh, towards the end of our podcast. Essentially, it's just three hubs that the uh, South Australian government have proposed um, to house sort of green, yeah, so green hydrogen production projects. The sort of driving force behind this is the fact that, as again we talked about last week, South Australia is really close to actually providing 100% of its electricity from renewables. So um, we've had it fully from solar in the past few weeks. And the fact is that actually it's got more wind than it's got solar. So the, the chances are that it will reach sort of net zero for most of the time over the sort of next few years. So looking beyond that, though, you obviously want more renewables projects. If you've got the land, why not? And because South Australia is fairly poorly connected to the rest of Australia, it actually makes sense to distribute energy as green hydrogen more than electricity in lots of instances and that's this sort of driving force behind this green hydrogen production obviously this then means that you can build up more renewable capacity which can then fund sort of the whole export economy i think South australia said that they want 300 percent of their own uh, electricity demand in, ter- in renewable production which means there has to be like a six-fold growth in renewables projects which a lot of this will then fund the production of green hydrogen which will then firstly provide australia with its hydrogen needs but then south korea japan taiwan where there are sort of hydrogen plans starting to emerge and they don't ha- necessarily have the same amount of renewable resource because there are a lot of um, australian hydrogen startups well not, not a lot but the, it seems to be a hotbed of you know activity in the hydrogen industry yeah i think australia is a really interesting market for hydrogen especially transport as well because more so than say europe you've got the potential for transport to be sort of more long haul and electric sort of trucks for instance won't necessarily service that sort of operation these trucks will be that will be traveling between sort of industrial hubs where it's actually quite easy to have sort of on-site hydrogen production so it is therefore quite easy to build up an infrastructure sort of place by place where hydrogen transport can develop more quickly than it can in other economies yeah, it really is the most long haul country in the world. There's other places that are similarly sparsely populated, but they're not wealthy like Australia is. I visited my dad and, you know, it's a, it's a 1000 kilometre drive from the airport to his house after, <laughs> when you fly in. That's the closest airport. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Long, and, so. and this land as well, is they've just got abundance of land in the centre where there's absolutely nothing. Yeah, so I, I, having solar panels there, having wind, wind turbines there just really isn't a skin off. A farmer's back especially if it can provide revenue which hydrogen production in itself will provide so um there really could be this sort of democratic approach to energy development in south australia which hopefully when transmission starts to develop will then propagate through the rest of australia in the in the mining concerns in australia they have self-driving trucks already they had them for a while they uh, they have to go into inhospitable climates uh, over long distances and they um, so they they are prone to throwing some technology at this and um, getting the job done because if they can mine some of the inhospitable places they mine they could certainly build solar panels in the same places it's a shame that there's this i mean there's not a great deal of rainfall in that part of the world because they've got the mountains they just i I don't think they've got predictable water flow for hydro do they 
No, not nearly as much as they do sort of potential for uh, photovoltaic. I think that's the way that it really will go is for solar and wind. One of the things that really needs to change, though, is the federal government against the state governments, like we've seen in the US. I think Scott Morrison has been quite famously anti-renewables, quite anti-climate action, whereas certain states have been much much more progressive. I think with the fact that Australia is massively dependent on fuel exports, I think there does need to be this sort of federal level shift towards hydrogen if it wants to replace coal and gas exports to countries like Korea, Japan, the UK, who are already pledging to net zero and therefore will start to see the demand for these fossil fuels falling. You're going to see though, even coal companies who say, we can use our coal to make hydrogen and ship the hydrogen to Japan, yeah, with that brackets, they won't know that the hydrogen isn't clean. It's not their problem. It's the same as fracking. Fracking has all these methane leaks and, and is really nasty way of bringing natural gas to the market but does the uk realize that it burns american fracked natural gas 50 percent of its gas is imported nobody cares if it's not done on their patch and i think australia's gonna have a problem getting off this stuff uh, you know if they just think that, that it's only important what we we sell to japan it needs to be it needs they need to have some kind of conscience about what they're doing and how they export it to japan or how they create it in the first place yeah it brings quite an interesting sort of philosophical debate really because there will be there is a possibility that the demand for hydrogen will increase faster than it's being produced. So, I mean, in Europe in particular, we're seeing that blue hydrogen will provide a stopgap using carbon capture. But in Australia, I really wouldn't be surprised to see sort of grey hydrogen from natural gas or brown hydrogen from coal entering that mix and then being shipped over to South Korea and then being burnt and then South Korea claiming it's net zero because the emissions aren't actually on its soil. Obviously, as you start to move beyond sort of 2030, there will be sort of a mandate for full scope emissions to be addressed and having production guarantees for the hydrogen will become a thing and there could be a massive downward spiral for the Australia if it doesn't shift its production of hydrogen from these sort of fossil fuel methods to green hydrogen or even blue hydrogen if it can do it successfully. Cause, yeah cause, but, and there's going to be international pressure on Australia to do that I mean you, that's when you're going to want a highly popular democrat US president to take over who's, who's knocking on the door of his allies and friends in the Southeast Asia saying, come on, guys, you know, you, you need to knock this coal on the head. And um, and that kind of pressure will not come from America in, in the most part. It's probably going to come from China because Australia does so much business with China. Yeah, I mean, and China this week have already started proposing things like their own domestic carbon taxes. So things really are starting to move in terms of China actually starting to put pressure on other countries to go green, which is definitely not something that you'd think if you were listening to Donald Trump's opinions on China in sort of the presidential debates. And we can probably expect that these Asian countries, Korea, Japan and China, will bring in controls against blue hydrogen pretty pretty predictably, maybe in three decades. Uh, well, I think that the, the idea of a, of a carbon border tax mm. is brilliant. It says, oh, you can bring that gas into our country with no tax unless it was produced in a carbon generating way or delivered in a carbon generating way. And then we add the carbon on at the border. So we can't import it because it would be too expensive. I'm sorry, you made it with coal. If you made it with solar, we could import it. So I think, think that we're going to see this gradual emergence of blocks using a carbon border tax to, um, to fix problems that are not on their territory. And how competitive will Australia remain in terms of producing hydrogen in its place and exporting it to Asia? Because they just have all this flat desert land, which Korea and Japan certainly don't. I can't see, I can't see why they wouldn't be massively successful. 
I think I, I think I think Australia has the potential to be sort of the Saudi Arabia of, of the South. I think yeah, there is really no other country there that has sort of the sparse population in regions where suddenly you can just put these renewable projects and hydrogen production. Um, and I think the trade links they already have means that if they can maintain those and can sort of keep them sweet with actually shifting towards green production. I don't see why Australia's economy won't be really boosted off the back of it. Because Korea and Japan will be trying to shift into offshore for both wind and solar, but it still it still won't be outcompeting these Australian imports. No, it's going to want an, an element of energy security. It's going to want to make a lot of its energy where it lives. Every every country wants that, but at the moment Japan is you know using a lot of gas imported from America to make its electricity where it lives. You know that's not that's being dependent on America. They shouldn't have any problem being dependent on someone more local who's who their economy is bigger than. I wouldn't imagine they they would prefer to get stuff from from Australia. So I, I can see those types of transitions happening. Yeah, and deals are already being signed in that regard. I know Japan's already got a deal underway with Australia. Even Germany's got a deal underway with Australia for some sort of hydrogen supply. So, yeah, it's just how Australia scales to meet these targets. It's well, it's funny. When we talk about climate change, we're talking about the world ending up looking like Australia. You know, with desert in the middle uh, and only a small area of the country on the, on the coast being hospitable enough to live in. They've got the natural advantage of being already desertified and they, they will use it. Yeah, and I mean, we said it before, North Africa is another massive untapped resource in, in that regard. And it just sort of requires the, the economic development that can be coupled with this um, renewables growth to actually propel it forward, both in terms of society and in terms of decarbonising itself, as well as sort of Europe and sort of going beyond. When you um, when you look at that part of Australia, is it too warm there for uh, batteries or will batteries be part of eventually of South Australia's approach? So they've already got more bat- like highest density of battery projects in Australia as, a, as an individual state. And I think while it is quite hot, obviously, there is there are cooling systems that can be powered by renewable electricity, especially if the projects are co-located. Yeah, that Tesla installation is in South Australia, isn't it? Yeah. That seems to be one of the biggest sort of economic miracles upon which the battery uh, revolution is being held in. It paid for itself in a handful of months. So um, I think the um, uh, the installations that were happening on mass in California are modelled on that idea. Should I cover Chinese Q3 figures briefly? Oh, good, yeah, go, go ahead. So yeah, China's National Energy Administration announced its quarterly figures for wind and solar. It was um, 7.6 gigawatts of wind and 7.18 gigawatts of solar. And to be honest, I don't think that was really the strongest quarter for solar. I think solar is being delayed by uh, these PV glass and the polysilicon shortages. I think it could still be a strong year. I don't I don't think it'll reach the full 45 gigawatts that some people have thought uh, for solar. But what do you think about the, the wind, Harry? Oh, was a massive quarter for China for wind. I mean, 7.6 gigawatts is three times as much as often it gets in a quarter. So, yeah, a massive boost for the country and a massive boost for its wind sector. I think it is partially a rush ahead of the subsidies phasing out. But I think with the cost continuing to fall and with turbine manufacturers like Ming Yang bringing out new sort of mid-scale, low-cost turbines, there won't really be a slowdown in stations in the long run. There might be a slight dip next year, certainly early on. But yeah, moving forward, sort of set the 7.6 gigawatt figure in a quarter is something that we will expect to see on a more regular basis. Uh, Ming Yang is one of the offshore wind manufacturers as well, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and offshore, again, continuing to represent a much larger portion of wind power in China and obviously on a much wider scale as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking to sort of utilise that massive resource in the Taiwan Strait where you've got these massive wind speeds and looking to supply sort of its coastal um, coastal cities. But obviously on- onshore wind 
through projects in sort of places like Inner Mongolia, you can then provide the place like Beijing, which is actually much closer to there. I know, um, Andrew, you got my attention to this massive hybrid project that was announced this week mm. um, with something like, two, I think it was two gigawatts of um, wind and solar, but again, with sort of 600 megawatt battery. So it's these sort of massive scale projects that if they were in the UK, they would be such a huge contributor to our energy that but when we sort of look at it in the Chinese perspective we don't bat an eyelid because these projects have become quite commonplace. It feels like there's a new multi-gigawatt scale hybrid project in China in the west or the north announced every three weeks or two weeks. I mean I think there were two this week maybe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, China's just following the economics. I mean, we saw in sort of like Lazar's report a couple of weeks ago that onshore wind and solar is just cheaper than building um, coal and gas plants in China now. So um, I don't know, why would they not continue with it? And they've got the companies to do it, like Jinko Solar and obviously Mingyang for wind. So if they can boost these companies to the point where they're supplying the rest of the world like they are in the solar sector, there's absolutely no reason why they wouldn't continue to do so. So Minyang or, or one of the others um, will soon be at the price point and at the uh, efficiency level to start exporting in volume. Do you see that as something that's going to happen soon? I think so massively in terms of places like India and places like Taiwan. I think there's a lot of there'll be a lot of protection in places like Europe for wind. I think they've made a massive mistake with the solar sector in letting Chinese manufacturers undercut the market. And they'll be really keen not to do that again, especially with companies like Vestas and developers like Orsted being such sort of a massive presence in certain economies. I think they, they will have to be some sort of protection. We will see some projects, including mini and turbines, I'm sure. But I think as a general rule, it will be sort of dominated by currently Seamus Gamisa in terms of offshore wind and currently Vestas in terms of onshore wind. Once bitten, twice bitten, three times bitten. I mean, the European Union has rules that stop protectionism. These companies will have to continue to be competitive. Now, we know they are because they, they sell in China. They, they manage to get business even in a regime that doesn't really like outside suppliers of technology. But I, I still feel that in places like Africa, which is part of the Belt and Road Initiative from China, there's no reason why they can't jump straight on that and finance it in the way they've tried to do with nuclear power and coal power. Finance it overseas. It's our money, so choose our uh, supplier and Minyang jump into top four place globally almost overnight. I mean, once they hit parity, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about if if the um, if the the subsidies go in China then finally they are competitive, not just with coal and gas, but also with European rivals. I mean, I don't, you're right, we will try not to let it undermine our success, and that's probably by building relationships in America where the Chinese are unlikely to be so successful. But around Southeast Asia and Africa, and continuing to infiltrate in India, I can see lots of business for them. Yeah, I completely agree. It'd be another area where Mr. Trump's let America down by not developing a native um, supplier. Well, they've got one in GE, but, you know, just 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 the one. Yeah, General Electric is quite an interesting company for wind because they are huge in the US and they are still doing pretty well. I think the fact that they've adopted the American mentality of bigger is better for the Halley-Odex turbine will mean that they continue to do really well in the offshore wind sector where I'm not sure the Chinese developers are quite there yet. I mean, China, their developers are sort of working on 10, 11, 12 megawatt turbines, whereas GE is talking about sort of 15 megawatts and beyond. So there is a a significant head start that GE and Siemens Gamesa have uh, in offshore wind. And I think the US will do well under a Biden administration, hopefully, promote the growth of GE and obviously the US offshore wind sector.